Hi everyone and welcome to the December edition of the distillerytours.scot podcast, giving you that wee bit of extra insight from Scotland's whisky distilleries. My name's Nikki Simpson and in this episode I spoke to Helen Mackenzie-Smith, co-owner of the Lindor's Abbey Distillery in Fife. Helen tells us about the history of the monks at Lindor's Abbey, how she and her partner raised the money to build a distillery and the importance of it not being Disneyfied, their approach to bringing up people through their team at the distillery, and of course the release of their first Scotch malt whisky coming in February, the 1494. This episode was recorded in October 2020, when the world had been social distancing for around seven months to stop the spread of COVID-19. If you'd like to find out more about the distillery and its whisky, check out distillerytours.scot and click on the Book Now button on the Lindor's Abbey listing. We hope you enjoy it. So, hi, Helen Mackenzie-Smith, co-founder of the Lindor's Abbey Distillery. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you very much. Um, so tell us a bit about yourself and your career working in hospitality. Um, I started off in hospitality about 20 years ago and I fell into it rather because I was originally a classic car dealer. When I met and married my husband, I moved up to Scotland and discovered that there really wasn't much scope for my classic car dealing uh, up here. So I started off in hospitality with um, a rather grim hotel in the Lake District, but it was a big conference hotel and I thought I would learn my skills there really and cut my teeth but while that was while I was there a very lovely property opened up just about up the hill from from it and it was one of the first exclusive use luxury exclusive use properties in the UK and I um, hassled the boss of it because I really felt that I was much more suited to working there than I was at this conference hotel where most of the time your answer to most people's questions was no rather than yes which I felt wasn't really what hospitality was all about Anyway, he gave in and gave me a job eventually, and I stayed there for three very happy years. Learned an awful lot from him because he was really terrific. He qualified at the, at the luxury end and, and was a great t- tutor and, and became a great friend of Drew and I's as well. Drew then also went into uh, kitchens and learnt his craft from an amazing guy called Stephen Doherty, who was the head chef of Gavroche. He was one of the only chefs in Britain to hold three Michelin stars consistently. And he then, when he retired or semi-retired, he set up a gastro pub, again, one of the sort of early gastro pubs in Cumbria and Drew got a job with him. And he then taught Drew a massive amount, really, really great guy. And Drew then became the head chef of the place that I was working as well. So we became a sort of team. And we then transferred those skills back into Scotland and moved to property up in at Oxmarkshi, very close to home, and that it was while we were at Oxmarkshi that we found out about the link to Lindors. Thank you. Um, I mean, it's wonderful to see the Lindors Abbey um, distillery, or Lindors Abbey, I should say, dis- restored. Can you tell us about the history of the Abbey specifically, as opposed to the distillery, and what made you consider the opportunity of building a distillery on the site? The Abbey was founded in 1191. It's very ancient. It was an offshoot of a Turinensian Abbey. The Tyrannensian monks came from Tyrone in France, about 70 miles south of Paris. They founded the Abbey here. There's a lovely romantic story tied in with the talisman and um, the Sir Walter Scott novel about being washed up on the shores of, of the Tay and building a building an abbey where he was washed up. But the, the slightly more accurate story is that King David said that he would give, build, found, bound, build an abbey wherever his brother who was lost in the crusades 
did eventually turn up, or if he turned up, he would build an abbey in his honour. And his brother did uh, come back from the Crusades, and so David, true to his word, built an abbey in in, in his honour and founded it here. He actually gave the monks the land at Dundee, but the monks, who were canny folk, looked across the water and decided that it was more fertile and a better position. Over here at Newborough, there was a there was a quarry and there was a large forest and there was great running water and uh, easy access out to the trade routes. And so they, they founded the abbey here and it was pretty extensive. They were great teachers. They were they were really educationists. They weren't a closed order. They spent an awful lot of time educating the townsfolk. And that's why Newborough, the town that the abbey is built by, grew up. They taught horticulture and uh, reading and writing and um, other, other sort of monastic skills and obviously distilling and brewing. We first really found out and wanted to, to restore the abbey. He's always had a great affection for the abbey and he's always had a great affection for his local town and wanted to put his local town back on the map, but wasn't really very sure how he could do that. And in fact, there's quite nice bit of footage that in the courier from before I met Drew uh, saying how he'd like to do something with the Abbey to put it back on the map but as I say we had no idea how we were going to do that and then one night when we were at Myers Castle we were googling um, a, a company that we were going to use a luxury company that we were going to use to help us to promote the castle and it had this little article on the website it was the early days of the web it was about 22 years ago and um, it said that Fun, 10 fun facts on the on the website said that Lindor's Abbey in Fife is the birthplace of Scotch whiskey. And Drew and I looked at it and thought, well, we've never heard that and that can't possibly be the case. Anyway, we then did a little bit of research and then realised if we looked at a lot of whiskey books, I mean, Drew and I weren't in the whiskey business at all at this stage. If you looked at a lot of whiskey books, that they did indeed reference Lindor's Abbey as, as, as the place where whiskey with Friar John Corr had, um, had lived. So... Coincidentally, Drew's father, who was still alive then, got a knock on the door about two months later from a gentleman called Michael Jackson, the, the whiskey writer, not the uh, not the singer. And um, he said, could he could he take some photographs and have a look around the, the Abbey ruins? And Drew's father said, yes, absolutely. But we used to ask to look around the ruins a lot, so he didn't really question why. Anyway, about three months after that, he got a book through the post, which was called Scotland and its Whiskies. And a little note saying to Ken, thank you so much for letting me take photographs of your garden. If you look at page 178, you'll 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 see something nice. And on the page it says to Michael, sorry, it says to the whiskey lover, it is a pilgrimage, and there's a picture of the arch of Lindor's Abbey ruins. And so you and I thought, gosh, maybe this is we're onto something here, and we can maybe have a look at at, at trying to to restore the ruins. And our initial thought was we were just going to build a generic visitor centre wasn't necessarily that we were going to to build a distillery because we just didn't have any knowledge of distilling or or, or or how to go about that we then went off to work for Glenmorangie rather coincidentally we got a job running the beautiful little hospitality hotel that Glenmorangie have and it's a, it's very close to the distillery and it's, it's owned completely owned by Glenmorangie oh Glenmorangie House Yes, absolutely. And we, we, we were the Cadbolt and we were there for nearly six years. And quite frankly, it was the loveliest job in the whole world. Glenmorangie are an awesome company to work for. And Paul Neat was a really inspirational boss. And we, because of we were running the, the house and it's very small, we had an awful lot of interaction with the board because they would use it a lot for various things. And so they became, I suppose we had better access than maybe 
some of the salespeople or the people on the on the in the, on the floor or in the distilleries because we were seeing them you know at night having drinks with them and that sort of thing so we became it was a, it was say it was an absolutely lovely job and and they they were very accessible as 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 bosses and colleagues and the like we we then suggested to them that they may they might like to have a look at doing something here and they took it quite a long way but it then coincided with uh, LVMH making the offer to to buy us so obviously then it was put on the back burner because LVMH's whole focus then was on 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 forwarding Glamorangie in our bag and um you know, and Cadball to a certain extent, but mainly Cambridge and Arbeck. So the thought of building a sort of generic visitor centre down in Fife was was just not on their radar. So we shelved it pretty much and didn't do an awful lot more about it. We re- we did a couple of small releases. Obviously, we'd learned a great deal more about whiskey by that stage. One of the other things that Glenmorangie do that is, is really laudable is they make sure that every single employee is fully versed in how to do a whiskey tasting, how to appreciate whiskey, how how distilling works. You know, you have to go on, you have to be able to do a tour. And certainly if you're at Cadball, you have to be able to do a tour uh, you know, properly so so that you could stand in for one of the tour guides. So we started to learn a great deal more about whiskey and started to discover what a fantastic industry it was. But we were still very much in hospitality, but within the whiskey industry at that stage. So as I say, we, we sort of shelved it. I th- then tragically, Drew's father died. And we had to move back south. I stayed on for the for the transition period of the LVMH thing, and I commuted for a year from Cadball back down to here. But Drew had to come home because Drew's um, brother has has learning difficulties and, and needed somebody to look after him. So, but I don't think we'd have left Glamorange. And it's funny how how things transpire because you think, well, actually, we may be still there now and wouldn't have built Lindors at all in, in a way because we may well have just been very happy at Cadball and carried on with Glamorangie it's you know if it hadn't been for the death of your father-in-law do you mean yes yes uh so it's you know who, who knows really um as it is it's turned out very much for the for the best and, and we we still visit Cadball quite a lot actually because it's it's a really favorite place um anyway so we we moved back and I carried on in in more hospitality in various luxury properties Drew stayed put here more we felt that we needed a bit more of a base for our two children and obviously, as I say, Bobby needed somebody to look after him. So Drew was here more, but we moved about a little bit. He he would come intermittently, but basically Lindor's became home. I went up to various places at Allerdale, the, the, where the gentleman wants to bring bears and wolves back into, into Scotland. I ran that for a little while. I set up a consultancy company, really advising people on how to set up exclusive use properties because they were really thriving in Scotland at that stage. I... I really help people to do their interiors, staff them, uh, market them, that sort of thing. And it was, you know, it was a really interesting job. And I, I went all over the place from sort of Aldezair to the Wick huh. <laughs> and beyond and had some, you know, met some really, really interesting people because obviously a lot of these houses are rented by celebrities and, and, and by, by you know, movers and shakers within, within the sort of world of business and things. So it was always terribly interesting and quite challenging at times, but a, but a great job. I really enjoyed it. And, and all the time then, Drew was was looking at doing sort of small private bottlings and, and that sort of thing, really just trying to establish the name of, of Lindor's. But we had parked really the idea of building anything like a visitor centre or a distillery because we didn't really feel we were ever going to raise the funds. About seven years ago, Ken Robertson 
from Diageo, ex-Diageo Communications Director, who'd been helping Drew with, with various aspects of the, of the project at the beginning. He phoned Drew and said, do you still have all the trademarks? Because now's the time. The whiskey industry is in a different place. Now is the time to start looking at maybe building a distillery at, at Lindor's. So we match funded um, a grant from Fife Council, Fife Business Gateway for £5,000 to do a feasibility study. And Bell Ingram did a feasibility study for us and it was very positive. And on the back of that, we wrote a business plan and put that together and then went out to the market and actually very, very quickly managed to find an investor, which was not really what we were expecting. It was It was gratifyingly quick. And we had three, we narrowed it down to three three contenders, one of whom was a very large player in the in the whiskey industry, and we felt lovely and charming as they were, and we knew them quite well from Glenmorangie, that um, we would get swamped and it wouldn't be Drew and I's project at all anymore. It would be it would be their project. The second set were uh, from the very far east, and the gentleman in question had already bought, I think, something in the region of a 98 vineyards and we felt we were just going to be a tick box for him having a whiskey distillery and again we didn't feel that he was passionately involved in the story or in the the forward um improvement of Nuba or anything like that it was just we would just be a number so we again we declined them and then we met three other gentlemen from uh eastern europe and we really felt that they absolutely bought into the story they passionately fond of whiskey, uh, passionately fond of, of, of sort of uh, the story of Lindor's Abbey. Uh, in fact, so much so that at one stage when Drew was in a, an initial meeting with me, he thought they'd be very rude because he was fiddling, the main gentleman was fiddling on his mobile and Drew couldn't work out what he was doing. He thought, go on, listen to me. I'm, you know, I'm talking to you and you're, you're fiddling around on your mobile. And what he was trying to find was a picture of Robin Hood because there is a link to the Earl of Huntingdon is is Robin Hood is rumoured to be Earl of Huntingdon, and Earl of Huntingdon was the first uh, ab was the ward sorry was the ah dear the first abbot was a ward of the Earl of Huntingdon, and uh, David David King David's brother was the Earl of Huntingdon, the one who's washed up, and so there is thought that he was Robin Hood, and this particular investor is massively keen on Robin Hood, and so he's very excited about about the idea of there being a link to Lindors and Robin Hood. So, so yeah, he, they, they really enjoy it. They're in it for the right reasons. They're in it for the long game. They, they appreciate that we're two families in it together. And um, they've been super hands off, super laid back about Drew and I wanting, you know, insisting on what design we wanted and all that sort of thing. And they've, they've been terrific co-investors. I mean, Drew and I put all our, our savings and, and everything that we had into it. And then they've, they've helped with the, with the rest of the considerable investment, because obviously it's you know ten million pound project, and Drew and I certainly didn't have ten million pounds. Yeah, well, I mean, do they visit very often? You say they're quite hands off, but I mean, you know, how often do you actually meet with them or speak to them? Probably, well, we speak to them probably about once a week. Um, sometimes not quite as much as that. We go and see them. We 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 went to see them in February, um, and we've been to see them three times. They they come to see us. They come, they used to come quite a lot more. I mean, of course, they just haven't been able to just recently because they really love Scotland and they, they were already fans of Scotland before they invested. They, they were familiar with Scotland. They, they'd been a few times. I think they felt that they wanted to buy a distillery, but they'd quite like the idea of a ready-made one, but couldn't find one at that stage because, as you know, there weren't very many for sale at the time. Yeah. 
and that's why people started to build them and then they liked the story so much and 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 I think found Drew rather charming and so they they decided that actually they'd take the leap and, and build one instead and I think they're very very happy that that's what we've all done. Yeah, wonderful. And how, what a what a wonderful thing to have the backing of people who you know who are happy just to let you get on with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they've been. They say they really are kind of dream dream investors. <laughs> to be honest, um, I mean they they do have an input. I mean they they because one of them in particular has a, has quite a, a great marketing background, and so we take valuable advice from them, and they're very free and, and easy with their advice, which again is what you kind of want in an investor. They're not. Um, you know, they don't change. I've seen at times with other people's projects where they sort of change their mind or they get threatening when the money's not coming quite in as quickly as you think and that sort of thing. And they've they've never been like that. They're, they're very patient. Mm, nice. Um, what about the whiskey industry in Scotland? I mean, what was the what was the support like there? Oh, incredible! I think I mentioned touched on before that I my background is classic car dealing. Without denigrating any of my lovely classic car pals we would sell our grannies to get ahead <laughs> whereas um in uh in the whiskey industry it's completely different they're really everybody has been super supportive I mean, people go on about diageo being sort of great behemoths and uh, you know big monster of a, an institution they from the very first instance were wonderful uh donated a trademark to us which was incredibly generous, really back in the day. I mean, I wonder now whether they probably slightly regret that, but uh, but it was very good of them. They also gave us um a, a little bit of funding years back, twenty odd years back, to help to preserve the the abbey a little bit and to look after the grounds, which was extremely generous of them. And again, gave a lot of Ken Robertson, as I, as I touched on before, gave us an awful lot of his time, and we wouldn't be here really initially if it wasn't for Ken lots of other people again super supportive people who built other new distilleries were great with their time in in explaining what went wrong for them so that we knew what to look for to might go wrong for us i mean uh anthony wills at kilhoman gave drew endless advice simon erlinger obviously because of exclamorangy jim cook exclamorangy um keith Steele, exclamorangy have all been tremendously supportive annandale took our our first initial young distiller who had no experience whatsoever of distilling they took him for two weeks because it was a similar Jim Swan distillery and taught him the ropes and taught him how to use all the equipment I mean they've been yeah I'm, I'm probably missing people out that have been equally fantastic but um and Kenny Mackay now you know giving us the benefit of his advice Dr Jim Swan obviously um they've just been terrific and and really supportive and really enthusiastic about the project and there's no guile about sharing sharing anything really and so to that end we've found that we're being very very trying to be very supportive of other new distilleries as they're coming up behind us i in fact actually this morning he's just had to cancel but i was later this morning supposed to be having a gentleman who's building the distillery in the faroe isles was supposed to be coming to see me this morning to to talk about these but because of covid they've, they've had to cancel the trip but um it's really nice if you can help having had all that support on the way, it would be very churlish for us to to then not continue that. Yeah, nice to pay it forward, isn't it? Yeah, Absolutely. What was important to you with the build then? Two things. Firstly, we wanted a very serious distillery, and that was first and foremost the most important thing to us. With the story, and the story is lovely, 
we could be perceived as a, as a bit of a Disneyland distillery. And we really wanted to, to underline the fact that we're a very serious distillery and that making good spirit is really what we're about. And so Drew promised Dr Swan that he would invest what it took and that the investors and, and he would invest what it took to build a really, really state-of-the-art, decent, good distillery to make the best spirit we can. And so we used facades and we used wooden washbacks and, you know, we really did, and um, we've got famously got our, our two spirit stills instead of one for, for all that copper contact. And that was very, very important. So that was probably the primary function. Secondly, we wanted the whole building to be multifunctional and to and to be quite adaptable and and it was important to us that we employed quite a lot of people in the area you know because as i say we wanted to bring people to the area newbury is a really fantastic town with a great heart but it's quite um underfunded and so one of the things that we really wanted to do and that drew's always wanted to do is to promote the town so we had to have a visitor center really because a distillery as you know doesn't actually employ that many people so that was the second most important thing. And we wanted somewhere that the community community can use um, so that, for example, we use it for a lot of fundraising events. We use it for the small Christmas party, use it for things like the, the, the celebrations of, um, well, not celebrations, the commemoration at the uh, November Remembrance Sunday a couple of years ago. You know, the whole community gathered in the Abbey ruins and, and held hands and we had you know the lit the bear and it's all that sort of thing is all is very very important to us but then equally because we decided not to make a gin we had to make a visitor center that was going to produce revenue other than just from tours so we do a lot of weddings we do a lot of uh, corporate entertaining we do stuff with brooks brothers and and car launches and car tours and that's that type of thing so it's very important to us that it brings money and employment into the local area yeah, and I guess your hospitality background has done you well in that instance then. Absolutely. We already had the content tax, so it was relatively easy to 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 be yeah, ready for that. So you mentioned Jim Swan. Um you worked with him to design this the distillery. What do you think he brought to the build? Uh, a great deal of knowledge, um, a great deal of passion. He really was uh a very very passionate man about his craft and you know sometimes we'd be in meetings with Forsyth and I think oh my god you can't say that you know but he was very clear about what he wanted and how he wanted the distillery to work and he drove a very hard parking <laughs> which was good for us and possibly not so much for, for Richard uh, but it was it was yeah really great the um he brought a great enthusiasm I mean his his energy was boundless I mean before he died Drew and I had no idea i genuinely thought she was about 60 and uh, and it was only then when we died that we discovered that he was actually 75 and we had no idea about that huh. um yeah and he was you know he became a friend as well as as well as a, an advisor and and so you know it was particularly tragic that he he died the day that we were well the night before our topping out ceremony of which he was the guest of honor and uh, so it was tragic that he never got to see the finished article um, which is, 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 yeah, really, really sad. His family, we're glad to say, still visit us quite a lot. So that's really nice. And that continues. And our, our distillery hall is is named after him. And from his memorial service, the, the people at the memorial service gifted us the um, 
the signed photographs and everybody in the industry signed these photographs and they're up in the distillery hall which is is nice for visitors to see and it's nice to think that his legacy continues there yeah what a legacy as well i mean i think he's yeah you know had such an impact on the industry hasn't he absolutely you know yeah absolutely and so he was he was a terrific guy and very under because the strange thing is nobody out with the whiskey industry know, knows about him and yet everybody within the whiskey industry knows what an important you know, I remember at his memorial his his one of his daughters saying that they had no idea really what he did and and what he brought to to the whiskey industry because he was so humble about it at home huh. that's kids though you know what yes, do you do yes. for a living oh i work in whiskey that's fine that's all i need to know (laughs) (laughs) so um how many days are there to go then until your until your scotch can be released is it uh am i am i right 51 is that you are i think it's 51 i have to look in my diary because i've got a countdown in my diary um what day are we today the 30th yes 51 well done yes that's exciting it's very exciting what have you been doing to to plan for that release? Well, the release probably isn't actually going to be until February, but obviously the main thing we've been doing is is putting together the the recipe for those. So the first release is only fourteen hundred and ninety four bottles, absolutely dead on, no, no more, and um, it's going to be very special. Lorena, our our, our blender trainee blender, is is working on that, and she's getting advice from various people within the industry. Uh, to help her with that and we've been having tasting panels consisting of, of our distillery manager and Drew and I and a couple of the sales guys and our brand ambassador and we and, and our cast custodian and we've all been together choosing blind doing blind tasting amazingly we are all on the same page after each blind tasting which is quite impressive and I think quite impressive nod to Lorena for her for her skills in, in, in sort of leading us towards that. So we've got a really, well, I think now we've got a really, really interesting spirit to go into this first release. It's going to be different to the, to the spirit that comes out in in June when we when we do our first general release. But uh, but it's it's really going to be worth it. And the bottle is we've pretty much signed off the design now. And I am so excited about the design as well. It's really really different and really fab and can you tell us more about the malt then are you able to reveal the tasting notes at this stage or could you tell um, us more about aquavita i well aquavita is is easy because aquavita is um our, our lovely our lovely wee drink that we that we make out of new make spirit and then the aforesaid lorena uh makes it up with uh dates and raisins and various herbs and spices some of which grow here in and around the abbey ruins and some of which get come over from from the far east we like to believe it's a little bit of artistic license but we like to believe with the far eastern link that we know that the monks were trading with flanders and we know that flanders then uh, were trading with the spice route so we don't think it's too far a stretch of the imagination to think that the monks might have been able to import some of the spices that are in aquavitae back here to to lindors they were they were they were trading uh, salmon with with flanders and with, there is historic record of them trading salmon and they were putting that in into into casks and sending that across across the water the um so the aquavitae is a lovely drink we're using it it's funny we were talking about this to some clients last night really initially our thought was that it was probably going to be a sipping drink and that was our plan it's actually evolved into a much more of a cocktail drink our perfect serve has has turned out to be an absolutely delicious sort of fresh new version of a, of a gin and tonic really a play on a gin and tonic and it's it's 
aquavitae with ginger ale and a slice of lemon in a in a highball over ice and it's absolutely fantastic and it's a great it's funny somebody described it last night as being like a new pims and it, it is slightly like that it's also very adaptable so in so tonight for example for the halloween event it'll be mulled with with apples and uh and a little bit of of cider and it's fantastic with that you know it makes an incredibly good warm drink as well so it's it's it, you know it's terrific uh martinis uh, terrific to absolutely fantastic espresso martini so it's yeah it's a great drink and we're, and we're really proud of it there are days when we wish we'd made gin because it would have been easier to sell but it, it is now getting a real following and we're very happy it's just very hard when you decide to set yourself up in a new category i suppose yeah for sure but i think um also that's what makes you you know long term that's what makes you unique isn't it i mean if you'd gone down that route then you know that would have been similar to other distilleries and this is what makes you special or one of the many things that yeah. makes you special absolutely and, that, and that's what we're hoping really really happens that it that it that it continues on um i mean i think some people think that we might stop making it once once we start to, to sell whiskey but that's not the case at all we'd really like it to be a we're very proud of it and we'd really like it to be a standalone drink on its own so so to come on to the to to our our, our actual spirit our, our whiskey at the moment we're feeling you know it's always subjective isn't it but i'm i'm getting sort of dark fruit dark chocolate quite spicy and a hell of a lot of sweetness and and once you cut through it with a little bit of water it's really really sweet uh we're we're i mean we we did win new mate spirit uh of scotland last year which is which was encouraging and we feel that that the spirit that we now have in cast is doing terribly well and we're super proud of it we're really looking forward to to releasing it actually and hope that people feel the same way that we do about it but we're very very excited about it. yes well i think I, i'm certainly excited so yes <laughs> hopefully i can speak for everybody else so you mentioned briefly uh your trainee blender lorena mm -hmm. Can you tell us some stories about uh, some of the team working at Lindor's? Well, Lorena's well, Lorena's quite a good story in herself. Lorena came to us as a to a, a kitchen assistant, really. She came to help when we had the refectory cafe. We used to serve uh, homemade scones and soup and that sort of thing. And she was came as a cook, and she's absolutely brilliant at making delicious Chilean food. She's I don't know if I said she's Chilean. Um, but she made absolutely delicious Chilean food, but she wasn't brilliant. And I think she'd be the first to admit this at uh, making scones and soup. <laughs> so, um, so we weren't, but we really, really liked her and she was super enthusiastic. Anyway, it turns out she had a food science degree from Chile and she is actually a food scientist. So that was very fortuitous for us because we didn't really know that when we took her on a sort of casual basis from the village. And she then sort of started to work with Tim, our apothecary. To help make the aquavitae and it turns out she had a real talent for that she then so so she moved over to the distillery basically and now she works full-time over at the distillery side of things rather than the visitor side of things and it's just a nice she's she's been being getting advice from from uh, jim patterson's been helping her to develop her her nose and her blending skills he says she's got quite a natural nose for it which is you know really again really really handy and she just seemed to have shown a great aptitude and it's lovely to be able to give her she takes it very, very seriously, and she's you know, learning more and more about whiskey as she can as, as we go, as we all are, really. I mean, about seven of the team at the moment are doing their IBD course. So, um, we, you know, because, again, you want to keep your, your staff and, and keep them 
engaged and keep them in stop them looking elsewhere really if you possibly can and and, and hope that they're in it for the long term with you so that's a yeah something that we have been doing um so so we and we've got quite a lot of that happened yeah, so elliot joined us uh, as a front of house manager to run the visitor center and i think again he would admit that it wasn't really his forte i think he joined taking any job because he wanted to to join a distillery but turns out he's he's very very charming and very very knowledgeable about whiskey and so he again we weren't really sure what to do with him but you know, and you never you never want to 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 crush a, a younger person's spirit or anything like that. So we fiddled around and it became quite apparent quite quickly that he was very, very good at sales. I mean, unbelievably good. And so he became our cast custodian. And now he is, again, pretty much involved in the distillery all the time rather than the front of house side of things and looks after our cask owners and our cask sales and has just flourished unbelievably. He's, he's a great asset to us and, and a really enthusiastic chap. But again, he didn't join us in the job that he's ended up doing. We also have a, a, a gentleman who joined us as a gardener who's ended up as a distiller. We have a, a gentleman who joined us as a, as a front of house waiter who's ended up as a distiller. So uh, I suppose it's more about character and personality and finding the right niche for them in the company once you find out that they're hardworking and because there are various things you can teach people and various things that they just have as innate skills and I think the thing to do is to to play upon their innate skills and then try and develop them. Lovely that's nice that you've been able to you know keep people in in the distillery as well I mean you're talking mm. about how you want to support the local area and so on that's really nice that you're um, that you're focusing on that you know it's really important especially at the uh, you know during Covid with to be able mm. to support people um, locally isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. Well, say so it is genuinely super important to us that, you know, I, I without sounding too, you know, I don't want to sound patronising about it, but it is, Drew and I have been very lucky in, in life. You you shouldn't take that for granted. Uh, you know, you should, and you certainly shouldn't be. I mean, that's one of my, <laughs> I won't get too political, but that's one of my issues with the current Conservative government is that they have no empathy about about anything. And I, and I feel, you know, they've come from, positions of great privilege which they don't then seem to want to share with anybody and I really feel you should try and put in what you get out of life you know what I mean and and, and try and, and be as, as as understanding about other people's predicaments as you can and 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 try and help people to get on you know I think that's very important in life yeah it's that pay it forward thing again isn't it just exactly about, it's just about yeah. um helping people if you can yeah yeah, I mean, we're not doing it entirely for altruistic reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think under, anybody was under that illusion. No, but no, I think, uh, but you know, I don't think that matters. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a, a thriving business, but just making sure that you, you know, that you, that you support people in your local community. I think that's so yes. important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, what do you think distilleries can do to encourage women to drink whiskey? Well, funny enough, I, th I think it's hard to know whether it's distilleries that should be doing it or women themselves. I there's a there's a strange perception that gin is for women and whiskey is for men, and I'm not just 100% sure how we how we alter that perception. But I think that distilleries are trying very hard to internally to shed off the whole kind of Scottish club 
you know, sitting by a fire with a crusty old colonel and a leather sofa and, and drinking whiskey on a dark night. And I really do genuinely think that, that distilleries are trying to shed that because I feel they realise that there is a market out there and that whiskey is a, can be an inclusive drink. I think it's almost that drinks marketing is is wrongly geared. And I think there's very much a perception. If you look on, you know, Etsy or something, there's all this, it's gin o'clock and it's Prosecco time and all that sort of thing. And that's very much aimed at a female market, not a female market that I particularly understand, but it is aimed at a female market. And we find when we're going to, to shows and things that as soon as the ladies that are with us or, or, or coming to the stand discover that we're anything to do with whiskey, their first reaction is, oh, I hate whiskey. I only like gin. Is it? And when they come up to the to the stand and say, oh, is it gin you're selling? We say, no, no, it's a different spirit and it's based, you know, it's whiskey-based spirit. And as soon as they hear that, you've lost their interest. Unless you can get them to try it. And once you can get them to try it, then they love it. And in fact, most of our purchases of Aquavito now are second-time purchases of, of ladies who tried it the first time. But it's very, very tricky to shift an entire mindset. And I think until, so I suppose what we need to do is is take on more ladies. We need to take on more ladies with a voice so that they can be seen to be enjoying whiskey. We need to, uh, yeah, include the younger generation uh, across the board. I mean, there's not many young chaps who like whiskey either. You know, it's that's not... That's not a, a gender bias. That's an age bias, I think, really. And mm -hmm. so I think until we can start to get a bit of a more of a voice. I mean, girls like Becky and, and things are really doing fantastic. And Justine and yourself are, are all doing a fantastic job. You know, Alice Sells and these of getting a, a younger voice out there and, and a, and a well-heard younger voice. But then equally so is somebody like Blair. You know, and I think then we're luckier that we've got a more aware generation of younger chaps who are more inclusive as far as women are concerned and 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 are, are happy to help spread the word for both sexes and i think that's quite important i think there was probably you know a, a, the marketeers of the it, it, that are now in their sort of 60s or 70s who haven't got a great understanding of eh, you know of any form of wokeness i suppose for want of a better word yeah interesting that uh, preconception of it being a male drink, I think, starts really young. I remember mm. um, on Burns nights and things like that, in, you know, in my late teens, um, asking for a, a whiskey and <coughs> Coke and, um, <laughs> and uh, being, uh, you know, that being a kind of point of ridicule from my male friends, then yes. saying things like, oh, you're going to be one of the boys and things like this, you know, mm. which doesn't mm. encourage you to want to drink it, you know, no matter how much you like the taste. No, 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 it doesn't. See, it's, it's, it's strange for me. Because I grew up in with with cars, my father's a classic car dealer as well. I didn't decide just one day to become a classic car dealer. I, I'd always been very much a female in a male world. And when I went into classic cars, you know, there, were, there were hardly any ladies working in it at all at that stage. And it was unbelievably sexist, it, hilarious fun, but unbelievably sexist. So I suppose I've never really been that worried about being told by a bloke that I can't do something because I've I've never adhered to that. I feel, you know, I've never felt second fiddle to a chap. And so I suppose I've always felt, well, if, if somebody sort of said to me and laughed at me about the fact I was drinking whiskey, I'd just think, well, I don't care, you know, I'm 
Oh and yeah, I'm no, don't get me wrong. I, sure, I, I wasn't. I'm sure a, you were exactly the same. Yeah, for sure. I wasn't a shrinking violet by any no. means, but um, no. uh, but it does, still it doesn't encourage you. You know, I think no. it, it, most women in some way want to feel feminine um, in mm. whatever format that is for them, and mm. if they've um, been specifically told that that is not a feminine thing to do, then it 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 does uh, like any kind of social pressure i think it, you know it, it 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 does play on your mind a little and even just subconsciously you know if you go up to the bar yeah. and your you know your friends are drinking gin and tonic and then your male friends are drinking whiskey you kind of just go oh well maybe i'll try a gin <laughs> you know? it's true it's true you see i've always felt there was something incredibly cool about women who i always remember being at a bar in edinburgh absolutely years ago before either of the children were born so it must be 20 seven 28 years ago and being with a girl she'd come up from london to see drew and i in edinburgh and we went into into mathers and uh, and she just immediately asked for a lefroig and i thought god that's so cool you know because she, she was quite a cool girl anyway and i thought god and she really likes that because at that stage i had had quite a nasty experience and i think this happens to a lot of people when i was about 18 or 19 my father did a car deal and he took about 20 cases of long john whiskey in a deal with um with a car and that's what we used to use for i suppose now they call it pre you know pre-loading but i don't think that's what we called it in those days <laughs> in, the, in the 80s but we used to drink it with lemonade before we went out and one night i had far too much and then couldn't bear the smell of whiskey for quite a long time um i then went off to work for drambui in when i was in edinburgh i didn't immediately go to hospitality i've slightly misled you there i went to work for drambui for a year because they had a fantastic classic car collection and I looked after that for them I sort of curated it for a year but but part of the of the of your sort of tenure at you, you were given a bottle of um of Drumbue every every month and um, and I started to think oh, yeah, it's quite nice and so, but you know, it's kind of a bit whiskey based and then I you started to do tours because I mean, you used to have to take prospective classic car purchases around the around the distillery as a sort of you know, it's a bit fun really to butter them up, I suppose. And I then started thinking, oh God, yeah, I quite like this. And then started to then try, I, I sort of bought a bottle of black bottle actually, funny enough, and thought, oh God, you know, this is, this is really nice. And then did start, so whilst I said that Drew and I weren't, whisk, we weren't we're whiskey aficionados at all, but we did really enjoy it. And so I suppose I've been drinking it fairly constantly from about the age of about 28. Um, but yes, I had had a bit of a bad experience with it when I was about 18 or so. So yes, yeah. I think we've all been there with one drink or another. Absolutely. It? Yeah. So what advice would you give to someone who would like to know more about whiskey then? I would start off with probably buying something like Blair's little um, station, but, you know, his underground book. Something that, that talks you through without being patronising, just gives you a clue. I've got a brilliant book that I'm a big fan of at the moment. And I, and I think it's really inclusive. It's called Whiskey, A Tasting Course. And it's by Eddie Ludlow. And it's really great. And I bought it during lockdown. And I don't think I you know necessarily need it because I don't suppose at these stages I need anyone to, to teach me how to do it. But it's really well written. And I think if you were entry level it would it would work really nicely and it's quite humorous and it's really well set out and it's it's beautifully done and i, I yeah I, I would say it was it was a great way of getting in but equally i would just go into some bars go into a whiskey bar you know with some friends 
and and just have a have a you know ask the barman to recommend a couple of things and go to the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society and, and get them to you know they're so good the, the the staff in there about telling you how to what to recommend and what sort of palate you might you know might suit your palate and things and just learn like that because it's a very inclusive you do go to Justine and and, and um, Karen's brilliant uh, you know the Five Whiskey Festival and again just just get in there and discover what a kind of fun thriving industry it is yeah and i think probably you know uh, i mean you mentioned the fife whiskey festival and the scotch malt whiskey society both of them are quite kind of um community-led i suppose you know yes. there's the people that you meet yes. there and and uh you know they're all so passionate about whiskey i think this is um that you can learn so much from others there just um enjoy whiskey really <laughs> and uh, yeah feel it is inclusive and feel it is fun what a great sign off thank you at the time of publication, the Lindor's Abbey distillery was closed to help stop the spread of COVID-19. But with a vaccination on the way, we're sure we'll see them open again soon. If you've enjoyed hearing from Helen and would like to find out more, check out distillerytours.scot and click on the Book Now button on the Lindor's Abbey listing. And look out for their second release coming in 2021. If you're interested in finding out more about Blair Bowman's Whiskey Tube Map, visit blairbowman.com and click on the Pocket Guide to Whiskey. Distillerytours.scot has every whiskey distillery visitor centre in one place. If you'd like to hear more from us, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, or sign up for our Distillery and Whiskey News monthly email to hear the podcast first at distillerytours.scot forward slash sign up. In our next episode in January, we'll be speaking to Stuart Buchanan, Global Brand Ambassador, for Brown Foreman's Single Malts, who own the Benriach, Glendronach and Glen Glasgow distilleries. We look forward to seeing you then, and in the meantime, wish you all a very Merry Christmas.